Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Welcome to the Kidney Commute, an interprofessional National Kidney Foundation podcast. I'm Kelly Beers, a nephrologist at Albany Medical College in Albany, New York. I receive speaking fees from AstraZeneca. I will be the host of today's discussion on hypertension and pregnancy. And I appreciate the rest of my panel joining me today. They will introduce themselves now. Hi, I'm Sylvisha. I'm a transplant nephrologist at the University of Cincinnati. And a lot of my research focuses on women's health and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. I have no relevant disclosures. Excited to be here. I'm Roxana Arani. I'm a maternal fetal medicine specialist at the University of California, San Francisco. I help take care of a lot of women with preeclampsia and have a PhD on the subject as well. And I have no uh, relevant disclosures today. Hi, my name is Selma Barber, and I am a two-time kidney transplant recipient, as well as a mom of twin 15-year-old boys an advocate for the National Kidney Foundation, and I am delighted to share my experience with you all today. And I have no financial relationships with ineligible companies. Hi, my name is Nicole Alvey. I'm an associate professor of clinical sciences at Roosevelt University College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy, and also a clinical pharmacy specialist in solid organ transplant at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. I have a financial relationship receiving consulting fees from Veloxis Pharmaceuticals. Very happy to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for being here. So the topic today is hypertension and pregnancy, and we're going to discuss all the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Sylvie, can we start with some definitions? What is chronic hypertension? How is hypertension defined in pregnancy? And how is that different from people who are not pregnant, if it is? Chronic hypertension is defined by onset of uh, hypertension, which is systolic blood pressure more than equal to 140 and or diastolic blood pressure more than equal to 90 before pregnancy or before 20 weeks of gestation. And hypertensive disorders of pregnancy can be basically classified into four categories based on the onset of hypertension and by presence or absence of proteinuria. So the four categories are chronic hypertension, gestation hypertension when the onset is after 20 weeks of gestation, in the absence of proteinuria, preeclampsia, again, the onset is after 20 weeks of gestation with the presence of proteinuria, and preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension. So why it is very important for us to know hypertensive disorders of pregnancy is because it remains one of the leading causes of maternal mortality, and at the same time, it is associated with higher risk of kidney disease and a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And how common is hypertension in pregnancy? So hypertensive disorders of pregnancy complicates up to 15% of pregnancies worldwide. Nicole, in the case of a patient with chronic hypertension, what changes should be made to someone's antihypertensive medications before they were to become pregnant? 
So some of the first-line agents that we use for the management of chronic hypertension in non-pregnant patients include ACE inhibitors or angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, the ARBs. These medications are contraindicated in pregnancy, and they should ideally be stopped prior to conception, um, but definitely stopped uh, at the time of diagnosis of pregnancy, as these have been associated with interfering with the kidney development and function of the fetus. Are there specific medications that women who are pregnant or trying to become pregnant might want to be on for their managing their blood pressure? There's a various different medications that are safe for the management of blood pressure in pregnancy. Any patient who is on, like I said, an ACE inhibitor or an ARB can ask to be switched to calcium channel blockers, specifically nifedipine. Um, they could also ask to be switched to beta blockers such as labetalol. So um, I know in clinical practice, many times when women are family planning, uh, their physicians will preemptively switch them to one of those medications prior to conception. You know, one of the uh, recommendations as well is that if a patient is planning to become pregnant and decides to switch their regimen, uh, we would recommend that they become stable on the new regimen uh, before attempting to conceive so that um, they have an excellent blood pressure control, especially in that first trimester, to reduce their risk of miscarriage. Roxana, what is when you when you say excellent blood pressure control? What is your goal for blood pressure for these patients? As Sylvie mentioned, we want to keep blood pressures um, less than one hundred and forty over ninety. Uh, and actually, we have a lot of data now that support blood pressures of less than one hundred and thirty over eighty, uh, so that um, to, that can improve pregnancy outcomes for both moms and fetuses. Yeah, now the old school thought was that you didn't want mom's blood pressure to get too low, right? But data doesn't really support that anymore? Well, we certainly don't want them to be hypotensive or at a blood pressure where they're symptomatic, like they feel dizzy or um, have other symptoms from low blood pressure. But for women or patients who have um, chronic hypertension, that's usually not an issue. Um, so certainly we don't want them to be, um, you know, less than 100 over 60, for example. But there's many patients who live in that um, zone, like who are not chronic hypertensives, and that does not affect their pregnancy negatively as long as they aren't symptomatic from having that low blood pressure. Great. Thelma, can you share your experience with hypertension in pregnancy? Yes, I'll be delighted to share my experience. As stated in my intro, I am a two-time kidney transplant recipient. And in 1998, my sister actually donated, so I had a living donor transplant, which was good up to about 10 years. And during that time period, my husband and I were trying. And at the time that we decided, okay, we're going to go full force with trying to have a baby, um, as you stated, there was lots of medications that I had to switch over. Um, had to clean out my system of medication, whether that had been from immunosuppressant medication um, and different diuretics. And once I had gotten pregnant with twins, ultimately it was a high-risk pregnancy from the get-go because with the kidney transplant, I already had the hypertension as well as high cholesterol. And then during the pregnancy, when I got pregnant, I was also having symptoms of gestational diabetes. So with that in mind, I was just, as I told everybody, a bag of tricks. 
And I'm so happy that I was able to find nephrologists and OBGYNs that were willing to partner together um, to make sure that I got my baby Sarah safely, but it was not easy. During that process, I did have symptoms of preeclampsia, and the doctors recommended that I actually decrease my pregnancy by one because they knew it was going to be extremely high risk. So as you said about the proteinuria, I had that. I had some blood in my protein, which actually started to mimic some of the signs and symptoms of the IgA nephropathy kidney disease that actually had taken my kidneys back in 1993. So with that being said, they were really hesitant about me going forward with this pregnancy, but my husband and I had tried. We lost two kids previously, and we say, you know, God did not bring us this far to bless us back with the two kids that we lost, and we're going to do this whether I had to sit on the couch and endure everything for as long as I could to get those babies here, I was determined. But it took a great team of people. But with that hypertension, I also retain a lot of fluids. I must have gained about, I want to say 60 to 80 pounds of fluid. And so they had to manage that with diuretics to help me as well. I had to take my blood pressure medication and they switched me, as you mentioned, to one of the medications, which was nafetapine. And um, I had to take insulin. So it was a very difficult pregnancy, but it was one I was willing to do. And my blood pressure actually was really good in the beginning, but then it started to spiral out of control. I started off with like a 120 over 80. And the more and more that we went into the weeks with the pregnancy. It just started creeping higher and higher to the point where the fluid retention just became out of control. The interuterine growth just wasn't going well with my twins. And so they decided to deliver the babies early. What they were hoping we could get the babies here within 32 weeks, but they actually came in 29 weeks. One was 2.4 pounds and one was 2.9 pounds. Wow. And how big are they now? Whoa. <laughs> One is 185 and 210, and they play three sports, and they are thriving well. <laughs> Good. I'm so happy to hear that. So, Roxana, what is preeclampsia? What is preeclampsia with severe features? Let's make sure we're all on the same page about what these disorders actually are. Well, first, let me say, Thelma, what you went through was unfortunately not uncommon. And I'm so glad that your outcomes were eventually that those uh, kiddos of yours are doing really well. So um, I'm so glad that you got excellent care. And Kelly, yeah, preeclampsia is a, a condition of pregnancy, a unique to pregnancy that is basically characterized by widespread endothelial damage, meaning that there are factors that are released by the placenta that affect every blood vessel in the body. So it is not limited to the uterus and the baby. It affects mom's whole system. And so preeclampsia is defined as Sylvie said, after 20 weeks where there's new onset elevated blood pressures of over 140 over 90, plus or minus protein in the urine. And then a severe a preeclampsia with severe features is when there are blood pressures that are much higher than that of 160 over 110. And then there can be elevated creatinine, for example, or elevated protein in the urine, which 
is indicative of kidney damage. And then, um, or there might be low platelets, which are the part of the blood that helps with clotting. Or there may, may be elevated liver function tests, so damage in the liver. Or there may, may be something called pulmonary edema. So there's leaky vessels in the lungs that cause fluid to be collected in the lungs and decrease, increases shortness of breath in patients with preeclampsia with severe features. And then at the other end of it, there can also be seizures, which is actually eclampsia. And so that can affect the patient's brain and is also patients with preeclampsia with severe features are also at risk of stroke. So as you can see, it affects the whole body and unfortunately can cause end organ damage. And so in Thelma's case, she already had these precious grafts for her kidney. And so their worsening kidney function is something that can happen to patients and um, can actually cause them to go on dialysis and end up needing a transplant. And Roxana, how should um, patients' blood pressure be monitored when they're pregnant? How often is it checked? Who is doing the checking? So that really depends on the risk factors that a patient comes into pregnancy with. A low-risk patient will just be monitored, uh, like their blood pressure will be monitored by their prenatal provider. And so that can be done in the office routinely during their prenatal visits. For patients that are at higher risk, for example, patients with chronic hypertension or a transplant or a cardiac issue or some other kind of kidney or liver dysfunction, they may be asked to monitor their blood pressure once a week and they might do that at home. So we encourage patients to get a home blood pressure cuff and feel comfortable taking it to calibrate it against an office, uh, an office cuff. And then they can feel confident that the numbers that they're getting at home are the same that we would get in the office. And then they would call us if a blood pressure is over that certain parameter, that 140 over 90, we would want to know about right away. Are there any other symptoms you ask your patients to call you for or things they should be looking out for? Absolutely. They would call us for a very severe headache. So a headache that's not typical of their usual headaches, if they're the kind that does get a headache on a regular occasion. The headache that you get with preeclampsia is most patients describe as the worst they've ever had. Sometimes they may also have what we call floaters or changes in their vision. And that's because of that swelling in the brain. And so that's a very serious sign. Sometimes they may have pain as well on the right side of their upper abdomen that's where the liver is. And so if there's liver damage, sometimes that can be painful as well. And there used to be the criteria of increased swelling. So especially in women's or patients' feet, um, that they would get especially swollen, but that's no longer a criteria for preeclampsia. And so um, we don't ask that patients call in for that. But I will say that sometimes when patients do develop preeclampsia, they do get a ton of swelling, but it's not necessarily in their feet. They may notice it in their hands and their face especially, and that would be a reason to call us. Thelma, in your case, how was monitoring for blood pressure done? And then after delivery, who was monitoring your blood pressure? As Roxana said, uh, blood pressure monitoring for myself, it was actually done at home. And what happened was I used to use a digital monitor, but then we realized that that wasn't effective enough. So I had to use a manual and learn how to take it in that 
gave me a real, true, clear picture on how elevated my blood pressure was. And to mention what she had said in regards to monitoring, every two weeks I went to get it tested, as well as had sonograms for the babies, you know, to um, to be checked. So I was like in and out of the doctor's office like every two weeks checking on something because as she stated, with the fluid retention, my feet were so big, I had to wear slippers <laughs> during my pregnancy. I never forget, I had these cute little Snoopy slippers because I couldn't put on a shoe. That's how big my feet were. My hips were swollen with so much fluid, like literally up to my buttocks and my hips. Like my whole lower body was just so swollen, I could barely walk. And um, it, 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 it was a lot. But after delivery, I still pretty much monitored my blood pressure because everything, I'll tell you, it felt like I lost a whole person in 30 days. So much water weight came off of me, like in four to six weeks. It was amazing to see that all of that was fluid retention. But then when she mentioned about the headaches, in my situation, previous to being, prior to being pregnant, I was also diagnosed with pseudotuma cerebri. So I didn't know if I'm having one of those headaches, was this a preeclampsia headache or what was going on? I just felt like my head was going to explode. And as she said, the floaters, the eyesight, it was just crazy. And um, I think during that time, I also had to have some spinal taps because the fluid just got so much um, due to the pseudotumor. Thelma, you went through a lot. Congratulations. Yes, ma'am. Congratulations <laughs> on getting through all that, you poor thing. I tell people I have a walking, living, breathing miracle. I'm not supposed to be here, but, you know, I'm just thankful for life, thankful I was able to get the babies here and being in this position to share with people. But after I went through that process, I guess those early symptoms of what they thought was preeclampsia ultimately were was the kidney um, rejecting. And unfortunately, after my children were born, like two years, my kidney rejected. I went back on dialysis. And in 20, they were born in 2008. And in 2011 of March, I received a deceased donor's kidney. So I'm thankful for life. I'm doing great now, 12 years under my belt. The kids are 15. And I can't say how grateful I am for a wonderful team of doctors that took care of me during that process. Yeah, that's great. I'm so glad you got good care. And hopefully by talking about this, we can bring more attention to this really important topic and more patients in your boat can make sure they're getting the care that they need. Sylvie, which patients are at the highest risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and who, which of these patients should be seeing potentially specialists or getting more closely monitored? So kidney disease definitely increases the risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Patients with chronic kidney disease, patients who are on dialysis, or patients who have a kidney transplant, like Thelma was sharing her journey, increases the risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and preeclampsia. Uh, Roxana did mention a couple of other risk factors, including history of uh, liver disease, cardiovascular disease. Diabetes can increase the risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Uh, obesity and advanced maternal age are other uh, important risk factors, uh, which uh, increases uh, the risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Silly, what can pregnant people do to lower their risk of developing a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy? So one of the important things include uh, 
regular follow-up with their physicians and monitoring of the of their blood pressure at home to diagnose it early. Uh, the other uh, intervention which has shown to reduce the risk of preeclampsia is use of aspirin, uh, which should be started at the end of first trimester and has shown to be effective in reducing the risk of preeclampsia in uh, all patients who are at high risk of developing preeclampsia. Now, Nicole, you mentioned earlier medications that are safe to treat hypertension in pregnancy. I don't know if you want to comment on this, if anyone else wants to comment. Does keeping blood pressure normal decrease the risk of the hypertensive diseases, meaning development of preeclampsia? Do we have any data on that? The management of hypertension in pregnancy is, there's two ways, right, or two types that you would have to treat the acute hypertensive episode, which is generally treated with IV hydralazine or IV labetalol. Um, and then there's the management of hypertension or chronic hypertension of pregnancy. And we spoke earlier about the medications that are used generally first line. Um, so usually monotherapy with labetalol or with nifedipine. Um, things to consider though with labetalol, if you have um, a mom who has significant asthma, um, you may want to avoid labetalol or has baseline uh, bradycardia, you may want to avoid labetalol as well um, in those patients. And then for nifedipine, uh, Estama already explained with her experience with the lower extremity edema that often comes with pregnancy, regardless of medications the patients are on, nifedipine is associated with a significant amount of peripheral edema just in general um, for patients that take the medication. And it's also associated with this phenomenon of a first dose uh, headache. And so we're talking about headaches being, um, you know, a sign of preeclampsia. And so sometimes it's concerning for women when they take that first dose of nifedipine and do have this high um, incidence of headache or severe headache um, to determine if it's from the medication or from the preeclampsia itself. And then just to mention on methyl dopa, I don't know that it's uh, routinely used that much in um, clinical practice, and I would definitely defer to Roxanne on that. Um, but it does have a long history of use for hypertension in pregnancy, um, but due to the adverse effects and its limited um, efficacy, it's really seemed to fall out of favor. And then Delma talked a lot about her uh, edema and swelling again. And so, um, you know, early studies suggested that perhaps diuretics were not safe um, in uh, pregnant patients due to decreased um, volume in patients. And um, thinking that overall patients with preeclampsia had a decreased volume, and of course, diuretics would exacerbate that. Um, but further studies now and more modern studies show that they actually are safe um, for use in pregnancy. And so hydrochlorothiazide has been used um, in pregnancy, um, especially for women that have salt-sensitive hypertension or patients um, like Selma who have developed um, the lower extremity edema. Great. Thank you. That's really helpful. I know in my clinical practice, I had a patient who loved methyl dopa and thought it was great, worked really well for her, didn't have side effects from it, hated labetalol, and then in a subsequent pregnancy was not able to get methyl dopa. I don't know if anyone else has even tried, but the pharmacies around us just don't have it. They told her it isn't made anymore. I don't know that it's not made anymore. Um, obviously, in all aspects of medical care these days, we are plagued with drug shortages and drug um, in availability, um, but I do know that the manufacturer has, well, genetic manufacturer, generic manufacturers have um, backed out of the production just because of the low use of the medication. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if it was uh, happening to um, become harder to find um, for, for our patients. 
Also, methyl dopa is associated with postpartum depression. So that's another thing we should know if uh, they are on methyl dopa, which is extremely rare now nowadays. I haven't used it in my practice. Yeah, I think the postpartum depression is one of the bigger uh, adverse effects that really kind of started to limit the methyl dopa um, use, especially as just as society, we became more aware of um, the risks of postpartum depression in general, and then adding a medication that could exacerbate it um, was less than desirable. One medication that we do give to all patients with preeclampsia with severe features is magnesium, magnesium sulfate. And so they uh, go on a drip uh, of magnesium sulfate, and they will go on it again at 24 hours postpartum because that helps reduce the risk of seizure. Um, it's a neuroprotective agent, and it actually helps to reduce some blood pressure as well. And so um, that's one of the uh, medications that we would give to patients with severe features, but not patients with uh, preeclampsia without severe features. Thelma, were you given magnesium? And if so, do you have any comments about your experience with the magnesium infusion? I unfortunately do not recall getting any magnesium infusions. I think, would, I think you would remember if you did. It's Thelma may not have got it because her renal function was poor. So oftentimes oh, yeah. we hold yes. it um, in state in cases where there's poor renal function or where we won't give it as a drip. We may give it as a bolus and then monitor the levels. So you may not necessarily remember it, Thelma. Thank you. Nicole, what are some of the reasons that, that patients don't like it? Most of the time, it causes extreme nausea, and the patients just feel overly lethargic. And again, these are patients who are obviously in the throes of childbirth. Um, so speaking from um, my personal experience with it is that it made me extremely nauseous and just felt like I instantly um, had the flu and just couldn't get myself um, to do to do anything, um, headaches, um, nausea, and just overall extreme lethargy. Uh, Roxanne, I don't know if you have patients that have expressed dissatisfaction with their magnesium infusions or not. Yeah, a lot of the time people feel that initial flushing and um, as though their heart is racing a little bit, uh, but then it usually simmers down. Um, but hopefully the the risks and benefits, the risks, of course, of not using the magnesium is seizure and stroke. So we highly recommend it um, and hope that we can treat any other symptoms that a patient may have and may feel uncomfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify for our listeners, would there ever be a reason to take oral magnesium at home? No. No, there, I don't know that there's been any trials that have supported taking oral magnesium um, to decrease the risks of preeclampsia. Some people take magnesium daily because they have chronic headaches. Um, and so they may use it for that reason. It's safe to use in pregnancy if it was needed for another indication, but we don't generally recommend it for patients who want to use it to decrease the risk of preeclampsia. I have a question about the magnesium. Uh, my doctor, I take it now because it helps me sleep. So is that something that they could take during pregnancy to help with sleep? If they, if you were on it um, for whatever indication, that would be safe to do. 
Roxana, is there any evidence that keeping blood pressure on the lower side can reduce the risk of developing preeclampsia? Well, we don't want patients in pregnancy to keep their blood pressures too low. We do have a lot of data now to support that blood pressures that are under 130 and 80, uh, 130 for the top number, 80 for the bottom number, actually have less risk of preeclampsia. Um, and that came out in the recent CHAP trial that was recently published. Um, and so we do have a lot of emerging data about how keeping blood pressures a little bit more controlled, not up to 140 and 90, but keeping them slightly lower than that can help reduce risks. We certainly don't want patients to go too low in pregnancy because we do need um, a, enough blood pressure to go through the, the placenta to feed the uterus and to feed the fetus. And so it is important for patients not to go too low. Plus in pregnancy, you will feel a lot more symptomatic with low blood pressure. So for example, feeling dizzy and unsteady on your feet because of low blood pressure. There's plenty of women that do um, normally have blood pressure that's low. And as long as they're not symptomatic, then it's not harmful to the pregnancy. So Roxana, you take care of patients who have high risk pregnancies. When should a person be referred to a specialist like you? Well, oftentimes patients who are extremely complex. So patients, for example, like Thelma, who have a uh, some sort of transplant, whether it's kidney or liver um, or lung or cardiac transplant, those patients would come to us for a preconception consultation. So even before they're pregnant, but I would not just limit that preconception consultation to those very high risk patients, patients with chronic hypertension or with diabetes or with um, significant obesity. Those women are welcome to come for a preconception consultation. But if they don't talk to us before they're pregnant so that they can know what the risks are and um, what to expect in a pregnancy in terms of surveillance and timing of delivery, then we would just encourage um, them to see us whenever their provider feels like it's necessary to um, have a consultation with a high-risk specialist. But there's many providers that feel comfortable, and you don't necessarily have to see a high-risk OB doctor like myself. There's such great care out there. Um, and they'll send you for a referral for a consultation if they feel like you're especially uh, complex. Sylvia, are there any tests that can be done to determine if someone's at a higher risk of developing preeclampsia? So this was very controversial as to what biomarkers or tests can be used to uh, identify women who are at higher risk of developing preeclampsia. But recently, I think in the last couple of months, uh, FDA approved a test using SFRIT1 and placental growth factor ratio to diagnose uh, development of preeclampsia with severe features within two weeks of getting that test done. Uh, so now I'm assuming uh, in, in U.S. this test may be, uh, may be used more often. And I think Roxana can share her experience if she has used the test so far. I know my colleagues outside United States have used it because we always used to discuss this, but this wasn't really approved in U.S., so um, that was always a challenge. But now with recent approval, uh, I, I would like to see if there has been any changes in clinical practice, though it's just very recent. So we haven't used it. I haven't used it so far um, from the nephrology perspective. So, You know, currently in the U.S., obstetricians don't use a particular blood test to see if a patient is at risk for preeclampsia. 
Right now, they use a patient's history to give them their risk. But in Europe, there's assays measuring some markers in the blood that are commonly used, such as soluble FLIT, soluble endoglin, and placental growth factor, and their ratios. Um, and that kind of gives those um, patients their risk for developing preeclampsia. We don't use them in the U.S. right now, but the good news is that the FDA recently approved a test that measures soluble FLIT and placental growth factor. So actually expect that to be used by U.S. obstetricians in the near future. We're really excited about it. There are other conditions such as antiphospholipid antibody system, um, syndrome, for example, where you may test for certain antibodies in a patient with other risk factors. Um, and so patients who have APLAS, they are at higher risk for preeclampsia, especially that early onset preeclampsia that requires delivery before 34 weeks. We don't use any of them clinically yet. Is there anything you do use clinically, like uterine artery, Doppler, or uric acid testing? No, no. Some places do use that, but it's actually not been shown to be predictive. And so um, it is not uh, universally recommended. Okay. So... Roxana, what are some of the interventions someone with a hypertensive disorder pregnancy could potentially expect to have during their pregnancy? And what are some pregnancy complications that they should be aware of? So there's many complications that can happen because of preeclampsia or preeclampsia with severe features. In terms of uh, patient complications, of course, you can have worsening kidney function, worsening liver function, risk of stroke and seizure. And then also risk of bleeding because uh, the platelets may go low as well. It also puts patients at risk long-term for developing cardiovascular disease and stroke at an earlier age or at all compared to if they hadn't had preeclampsia at, at all. So there's a lot of work being done about how we can reduce risk of preeclampsia because we know that it puts patients at risk lifelong. And so it is something that we should avoid in patients. In terms of the fetus, the fetus, as Thelma um, mentioned as well, that oftentimes you have a condition called fetal growth restriction. So what can happen is that the fetus does not grow appropriately and is then at risk for stillbirth. So oftentimes we have to deliver early because of a fetal complication. If a, a patient is diagnosed with preeclampsia without severe features, then we would deliver them at 37 weeks with the due date being at 40 weeks. So they would get delivered three weeks early. And then if someone has a the diagnosis of preeclampsia with severe features, we at this time uh, deliver them at 34 weeks. So that is six weeks premature. And so of course, then there's all the complications of having a preterm fetus as well. But we know if we continue on with the pregnancy, then the condition for the patient gets exponentially worse, which is why we deliver them at that time. Um, now the goal is still to have a vaginal delivery. And so just having the diagnosis of preeclampsia does not mean that someone has to have a C-section. There's other reasons a patient might have a C-section, but preeclampsia is not an indication for C-section. Roxana, what is the definitive treatment for preeclampsia? Unfortunately, we don't have a medication that can stop the process. So that's why we offer delivery um, at a certain time that we know is safe in the pregnancy. So like I said before, either at 37 weeks for women who 
have preeclampsia without severe features. For women who have preeclampsia with severe features, um, we would deliver them at 34 weeks. Or at any time before that, even if we think that there is significant progression or harm to the patient. Now, the reason that delivery is the definitive treatment is because this is really a placental issue. There's, um, as Sylvie mentioned, placental growth factors, soluble flit, soluble endoglin. These are um, soluble flit and soluble endoglin are actually um, factors that affect the blood vessels through your whole body. So when the placenta sends them out into your circulation, that's what can cause preeclampsia. And so we have to get rid of the placenta in order to stop these um, excessive um, hormones being released. And so oftentimes after pregnancy, everything seems to get better and usually everything gets better sometimes within the first couple of days postpartum, usually within the first couple of weeks postpartum. And if there are issues after 12 weeks postpartum, then it would, it would then be considered a chronic issue thereafter. And at that point, who should they be following up with? So after 12 weeks, if a patient has sustained elevated blood pressures, um, for example, then they would be referred to their PCP for future management. As Nicole mentioned, there's lots of better medications that you can use long-term to help control blood pressure. And so you wouldn't just be limited to nifedipine and lobetalol. There's many others that might be um, more applicable to you. And so you should be on a medication um, that's managed long-term by your PCP. Thank you to our panel members for their contributions to this important discussion. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on this Ride of the Kidney Commute. Remember that eligible audiences can earn continuing education credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast.kidney.org. Stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice.